Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you, but before we look into God's Word, I want to publicly thank Pastor Glenn Hanna, our missions pastor, for putting together a wonderful month of missions focus in which we were not only informed, but we were inspired and challenged to be fully engaged in the often difficult and dangerous work of spreading God's kingdom in a broken world. Today, we're going to return to our year-long study of the book of Acts. And its stories offer us glimpses into the heart of God and what he's up to in this broken world. But the stories of Acts don't stop there. They also remind us of our incredible potential as God's people when we walk in the Holy Spirit. And they don't stop there. They also remind us of the incredibly difficult challenges we'll face as we walk in God's Spirit. And today's text highlights one of those challenges. It records God's caring words to the Apostle Paul at a time when he was feeling incredibly beat up and beat down. Our text is Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Here's what God said to his beat-up apostle. Keep up your courage, for just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also in Rome. I'm taking my title today directly from the text. Keep up your courage. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are in this room with us today. If you weren't, this would be a colossal waste of time. It would be utter foolishness. We know you're present. But even though you're present, we need to be open to what it is you want to say to us and do in us. So Father, I pray that all of us would surrender to the Holy Spirit in these coming moments and receive his words to our hearts, even if those words initially challenge us. I pray that you would give us insight, because our hearts are naturally deceptive. Help us to hear your truth. Help us to align our lives with that truth. Help us to take our next steps as we seek to grow in grace and in our knowledge of you, so that we can know you better and better represent you in this badly broken world. We are totally dependent upon your Holy Spirit now. So we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Melt us and mold us and then fill us and send us out and use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's word and listen for the voice of the Spirit to our hearts, may the Lord be with you. Scripture has a way of bringing things into focus, helping us to see what's really going on in the world and in our lives. And that becomes clear as we study the book of Acts. And one of the things that Acts brings into focus is the reality that faith ends some struggles, but it introduces some new struggles. It ends our struggle with the ugly effects of being addicted to sin. But it introduces new struggles, the struggles that go along with serving God and witnessing for Christ 
in a world that is still in addiction to the power of sin. Now, Paul knew that struggle very, very well. And God knew Paul very, very well, just as he knows you and me very, very well. So when Paul needed to hear a word from God, we read in the verse immediately prior to our text that God stood with Paul. And God spoke to Paul. But God's words to Paul have to be heard in their context if we're going to understand the impact they had upon his heart and if we're going to grasp the impact they should have upon our hearts. So let me begin by reviewing the backstory, the context before God spoke. A number of weeks ago in our study, we listened in as Paul's caring friends tried to persuade him to stay away from Jerusalem. They were actually encouraging him to refuse the will of God because God had shown Paul, you're to go to Jerusalem, and when you get there, all hell's got to break loose. It's got to be very, very hard. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be imprisoned. And Paul's friends had heard that same message from the Holy Spirit, and they didn't want their friend to go through all of that, so they repeatedly appealed to him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. But here's an important thing. Paul didn't allow his caring friends to keep him from obeying his best friend because his best friend was also his Lord. I want to repeat that. God, or excuse me, Paul didn't allow his caring friends to keep him from obeying his best friend because his best friend was also his Lord and his master. And I repeated that because we hear today in our current cultural climate great emphasis upon not offending your friends. And the desire to avoid offending your friends is a good and noble desire. But if it leads you to offend your best friend, who is also your Lord and Master, then that desire ceases to be noble and it becomes betrayal. Betrayal of God and ultimately betrayal of of your friends because you may rob them from the knowledge of the truth that would set them free. Think for a moment, if Paul had allowed his friends to persuade him to stay away from Jerusalem, what would he have taught them by way of example? He would have taught them that when God speaks clearly, you can still disobey if obedience would mean hardship. He essentially would have taught those Christians, you obey God as long as it doesn't blow up in your face. But but if there's the promise that it might get ugly, then you get a free pass to walk away from the will of God. Would he have been doing them a favor to teach them that? Would he have been acting as a friend by teaching them that? Remember, Scripture says the wounds of a friend are faithful. If you're being faithful to your best friend, at some point your words will wound your earthly friends, but they are the necessary wounds for God to cut away their deception and lead them into truth. So don't allow your caring friends 
to keep you from listening to your best friends. Paul didn't do that. He went to Jerusalem. And when he got there, he quickly discovered the Holy Spirit doesn't exaggerate. When the Holy Spirit said persecution, he meant persecution. Because despite Paul's best attempts to be understood, to plead with his countrymen, he was violently assaulted by a mob that was intent upon killing him. People were punching him. People were striking him with whatever they had in their hand. People were kicking him. People were spitting him. They wanted to murder him on the spot. And the only thing that saved him was the arm of God, well disguised as the armed intervention of Roman troops. And once he had rescued Paul, the Roman tribune assumed that Paul might be that notorious, most wanted Egyptian terrorist who at that time was leading 4,000 assassins against the Roman Empire. But then he probably thought a bit further and realized, wait a minute, if this is the dude that's seeking to bring down the empire, well, the Jews wouldn't hate him, they'd love him. So he realized this guy isn't that guy, but I need to figure out who this guy is. So he gave Paul permission to speak to the mob under Roman protection. And given the chance, speaking to the people who had just tried to murder him, Paul didn't respond with thunderous announcements of God's judgment. He spoke lovingly, he spoke respectfully, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, and he shared, look, guys, I was once where you are. I hated Jesus. I hated his followers. I persecuted them. I put them in jail. I had them stoned. And then Jesus appeared to me and changed everything. And he did that because when you know and love Jesus, you want other people to love him also. You're not juiced by the idea of judgment. That grieves you. You want people to love God. But Paul got to the part about sharing God's truth with the Gentiles. And once again, all hell broke loose. Because his appeal was heard as an attack on Israel. So in a scene eerily reminiscent of some demonstrations we've seen in our culture recently, he was shouted down in the name of patriotism and national interests. There's nothing new under the sun. See, the Jewish people had taken the message of God intended for everybody, and they had hijacked it and made it a security blanket for Israel's national concerns. And people are still doing that with the gospel of Christ today. Now, based on the crowd reaction, the tribune assumed this guy has to be hiding something. I mean, everywhere he goes, all hell breaks loose. i got to find out who this guy is. And he knew from experience that there was nothing like a good flogging to loosen a man's tongue. So he had Paul bound. But just before they began to flog him, Paul said, uh, you should know I'm a Roman citizen. Ouch. You couldn't flog a Roman citizen without a trial and conviction. That was a high crime against Rome. If he had permitted the flogging, the tribune would be in deep, deep trouble. To make matters worse, he had purchased his Roman citizenship. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. And to further complicate matters, 
if he had Paul flogged. Paul could get on his phone and call Shenderovich, Sandorovich, and Fishman because they only charge 25% and he would have the basis for a huge lawsuit. <clears throat> so, the tribune released him. But he ordered a meeting with the Jewish council because he still needed to know what was going on. But... No surprise here, that meeting quickly turned ugly. The room erupted in violence, fearing for Paul's life and his own if he let a citizen, a Roman citizen, be murdered by the Jews. Once again, he sent his troops to intervene and pulled Paul out. And that night, beaten, bruised, perhaps with broken bones, wounds all over his body, rejected by his countrymen that he loved and prayed for with tears. Paul heard his God say, keep up your courage. Keep up your courage. For just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so also you must bear witness in Rome. Now walk around inside of those words for a few minutes if you're the Apostle Paul. Just as in Jerusalem. What did Jerusalem meant for Paul? Beatings, attempted murder, attacks upon his life, and God saying, just as in Jerusalem, also in Rome. It's been really tough here, but we're not done yet. And then, as if to put a punctuation mark, an exclamation point to it, though one wasn't needed, Paul's nephew came and said, Uncle, I I've learned of a plot against your life. Over 40 Jewish men have pledged themselves to assassinate you, and they're on a hunger strike until they succeed. Now do you see why God's first words were, Keep up your courage. Now do you begin to recognize the impact those words would have had on Paul? Keep up your courage. See, those words were necessary for Paul because there is no following Jesus without discouragement, even when you're obedient. In fact, we might say, especially when you're obedient. Because when you're obedient, the enemy comes against you even stronger. And then it's easier to get discouraged. So if you're getting discouraged following Jesus, don't beat yourself up. It's inevitable. It was the case then, and it is certainly the case now in this culture at this moment in time. As you know, in our culture, God every day is essentially disinvited from his own creation. Every day, the opening verses of Genesis are attacked. In the beginning, God created. Male and female, he created them. Those verses are under attack because if you remove the foundation, everything else crumbles. Those who deny God's very existence are increasing in number and in popularity. Even though their philosophical arguments are sophomoric and embarrassing to any serious philosopher. So too, 
are those increasing who see religious faith as irrelevant on its best days and toxic on its worst days. We now, in our culture, see culture judging and interpreting Scripture rather than Scripture interpreting and judging culture. And in unintended echoes of Scripture, we now have come to the place where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's the mantra of this culture. And we call good evil, and we call evil good. And many professing believers act more like the religious aristocracy that resisted Paul than like the church. Because in many places, the message of Christ has been married to people's politics, their social agendas, their ethnicity, and anything that falls outside of that is condemned and rejected. So in the face of all of that, let me say this. If you don't find yourself discouraged occasionally, you obviously aren't paying attention. If you don't find yourself wondering, Lord, is it all really true? Is it real? Then you aren't paying attention. That doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It means you're paying attention. But when you hit those moments, God will stand there with you, and he'll call you to keep up your courage. And I want you to recognize when God calls us to something, it's not an empty request. Where God commands, God provides. Whatever God commands of you, God provides for you. He increases our courage, but he does it by increasing our understanding. He doesn't do it by removing the things that would discourage us. He does it by helping us look at them differently. You see, diminished courage is a symptom of poor spiritual eyesight. We lose our courage because of distorted appearances, because we aren't seeing things as God sees them. When I was a kid, my eyes went bad very early. I was wearing thick glasses in the first grade. And some of my friends were also wearing thick glasses in the first grade. And every once in a while, we'd play this little game. We'd trade glasses with one another and try to look at things through somebody else's prescription. Now, if you've ever done that, you know everything goes wacky. Your depth perception is off. With that, you lose your sense of balance. It feels like things are moving. And even walking was an awkward challenge. Why? Because we were looking at the world through the wrong lenses. Well, in the same way, when believers view life through the lenses of unbelief and fear, rather than through the lenses of God's character and God's promises, the view will always be distorted and it will always be discouraging. And our courage will be eroded by questions that arise out of appearances rather than realities. For that reason, sustained courage requires something. It requires stubborn discernment, the ability to continually look behind appearances and see God at work. In short, it requires the ability to realize things aren't always what they seem. 
Now, Paul is a perfect example of this. As this episode of his life began, he seemed to be at the mercy of the Roman Empire and corrupt politicians. Because of the assassination plot, he was hastily escorted out of Jerusalem, and they brought him back to the city of Caesarea to stand trial. He had just been in Caesarea a few weeks earlier. That's where some of his friends said, don't go to Jerusalem. Now he's back to stand trial. And you can be sure his friends were assuming the worst. But things aren't always what they seem. Paul stood before Felix. He was the first former slave to become a Roman governor. But he was still a slave at heart. He was a slave to his fears and a slave to his pride, and he couldn't govern his own emotions. So he was a hot mess. But he had the power. So he's sitting on his throne, and here comes Paul, less than five foot tall, bald, bow-legged, with a poor speaking voice, in chains. Now, if you're looking at that scene, who has the upper hand? Paul had the upper hand. Because rather than being afraid, Paul spoke boldly about righteousness, self-control, which Felix had none of, and the coming judgment. And you know what happened? Felix sent Paul away because Paul's message scared the daylights out of him. Paul was free from fear. Felix was a prisoner of fear. Felix later lost his post, nearly lost his life, and left a legacy of shame. But the little dude in chains fulfilled his post, invested his life, and left a legacy of hope that's still being felt today, 2,000 years later. Felix detained Paul for two years without trial, without conviction, because he knew if he released him, his Jewish subjects would be all over it. And while he was unjustly sitting in a prison cell for two years, Paul sought to please his faithful God. Then Felix was gone, and Festus took his place. Now, Festus was respected as an honorable man, far more honorable than his predecessor. So when Paul learned of his appointment, his hopes must have rose. This dude is too good to keep me in prison unjustly. But you see, Festus was a practical politician. He didn't need problems. If releasing Paul would put the whole populace at an uproar, let this one Jew sit in prison, and that's what he did. And then, you know the old saying, as if to make matters worse? Have you noticed there's always something to make matters worse? Then as he's sitting in prison unjustly for the third consecutive year, Festus says, maybe we should send you back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Jerusalem. Where they beat the daylights out of him and still wanted to murder him. Where those guys were evidently still on their hunger strike because they hadn't yet succeeded. <laughs> and at that moment, it must have felt like God had a cruel sense of humor. But friends, things aren't always what they seem. You need to remember, God often permits evil to serve his purposes. It'll never defeat him, but he'll let it serve his purposes. In this case, knowing what was back in Jerusalem, Paul said, 
As a Roman citizen, I appeal to the emperor. And in that moment, they had to, by law, send him to Rome. And Rome was God's next assignment. And he wouldn't have to purchase a ticket. He would go on Rome's dime with Rome's protection. But first, he got to appear before Agrippa II, another puppet ruler who ruled Galilee. Agrippa was a descendant of Herod, hardly a friend to the family of Jesus. He knew the scriptures, but he had pushed them to the margins of his life. He was married to his own sister. And once again, as is often the case, it appears God's enemies were in control. But things are not always what they seem. That hearing before Agrippa was Paul's last opportunity to reach his Jewish countrymen directly. If he had been able, by the grace of God, to convince Agrippa to place his faith in Messiah, Jesus, that would have opened the doors for witness all throughout the region, and many would have followed the example of Agrippa. But as Paul spoke directly to that man, he sneered, do you really think you're going to make me a Christian in the matter of a few minutes? And he walked out. And it looked like another defeat. But unbelief didn't defeat God's purpose that day. Because God's purpose was to speak to unbelief one final time. Remember, when things go bad in a culture and people react adversely to the message of Christ, they're still hearing the message of Christ. God is still speaking to that culture. Things aren't always what they seem. So let me close with this recognition. One ruler after another sought to handle Paul. Every one of them failed miserably because all of them overlooked one important fact that you and I can't overlook if we're going to keep up our courage. Paul was not on trial before them. They were on trial before God. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, are not on trial before this culture because this culture doesn't have the spiritual authority to judge the people of God. Only God has that authority. We are not on trial before the culture. This culture is on trial before God. God is saying to this culture, you have had more light than any culture in the history of humanity, and yet every day you want to invite me to step off. Eventually, you'll reap the harvest of that. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep speaking to you. I'm not demonstrating weakness and failure, God would say. I'm demonstrating amazing grace by letting you go on this way and still giving you a chance to repent. The world is not judging us. God is judging this world. And Paul realized that and enabled him to keep up his courage. So when it feels like evil is winning the day, and there are a lot of days like that anymore, when it feels like the world is strong and you are weak, remember God is near. I've often said if we could literally see Jesus standing with us, we wouldn't worry about anything. We wouldn't be afraid of anything. We would never panic if we could look and see him standing right there. We'd be willing to walk into hell if we knew he was standing right there. But he is standing right there. 
Remember, God is near. Remember the story of Paul. Ask God to improve your spiritual eyesight, to get you the right prescription. And remember, things aren't always what they seem. That recognition will help you keep up your courage. Because we don't need a church in this hour that is shrinking in discouragement. We need a church that is bold in the Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment to pray, and you ask God a simple question. Jesus, what am I supposed to do with today's teaching? And then listen for his answer, and then I'll close. Lord, we know there's no following after you without some discouragement because we're swimming upstream in a downstream world. And faith is not for the faint of heart. But Lord, when we're tempted to despair, get down, and get discouraged, bring to our remembrance this story from the life of Paul. You put it in the book for us. And help us to remember things aren't always what they seem and help us to keep up our courage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.